Hello, and welcome to Data Basic, a Warwick Data Science Society podcast aimed at making data science simple and accessible. I'm Jakob Smit, a third year Morse student, and in this episode, we're having a discussion with Shikhar Dev, a research assistant at Delft University of Technology, specializing in automated machine learning. We'll also have a segment in conversation with Tom Palmer, who wrote a popular post on our research blog about the demographics of the 2016 election and analyzing which voters actually made a difference. So without further ado, let's welcome our first guest, Shikhar Dev. How would you summarize auto ML or auto machine learning for someone who's never heard about it before? Okay. Well, so developing a machine learning application has a numerous a numerous uh, number of steps in the pipeline, right? You have all the way from data ingestion to the whole data engineering and feature engineering pipeline. And then comes modern selection and tuning the hyperparameters and designing the architecture and so on and so forth. And then you have validating the model and actually deploying, deploying the model. Now, AutoML is automating a lot of this part. So most of the AutoML, AutoML systems these days, they automate feature engineering and the hyperparameter tuning and the model uh, model selection part of it. Right. And how, how big would you say is the gap between AutoML that we're, we're currently using and the models developed by dedicated data scientists themselves? Well, so a skilled data scientist would still be able to um, far outperform AutoML systems. But um, I don't think the goal of AutoML is to kind of create uh, models from scratch. For example, it's more about uh, you know make it's more about ma- making them making the whole process go much faster. And so, for example, you have a huge search space when you are trying to choose the best configuration for your models, right? If you're dealing with a deep neural network, you have the number of layers or the number of neurons in the layers, the, the regularization parameters, and so on and so forth. So you have an array of different hyperparameters hyper that you want to tune. And this is typically an iterative process. That's a lot of waste of time. And there are a lot of awesome techniques that have uh, you know, expedited this whole process and automated this. So it's 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 more than more than you know replacing the data scientists uh, altogether. It's about augmenting them and making the process faster. Okay. So would you say that AutoML right now is focused more on the tuning of parameters and model selection, or is it more on the getting the data in um, in a format that we can actually use it? Do you mm-hmm. think there's a there's a future in AutoML for that as well? Well, so um, there are aspects of um, such as uh, you know they they have um, automated one hot encoding and you know limited feature uh, feature engineering. I wouldn't really call it feature engineering per se because it's more about filling the data and you know some data pre-processing steps. A lot of that has been automated, but feature engineering predominantly still requires a lot of domain expertise, right? Okay. And so that still largely remains a manual process. But then the rest of the pipeline, I mean, you know, the, the model selection and the rest of the pipeline is fairly automated so far. Okay, that's uh, that's very interesting. Do you think, just as a follow-up to that, mm-hmm. do you think that uh, in the future, data scientists will have to specialize more in certain areas, like, say, um, economics or politics? Or do you think general data scientists like we currently have uh, will still uh, be the most common? I think that that's a really interesting question, and that's predominantly the kind of uh, you know researchers and engineers who would gain to stand the most, in uh, in that people who have more domain expertise in different domains like economics or medicine, and they are using machine learning to create to automate different processes, uh, but they don't necessarily have a lot of machine learning background. 
um, they, they they do have a lot of, a lot to gain from AutoML coming into production. Okay, um, and could you give an overview on what you yourself are working on right now? Sure. Um, so I work with hyperparameter optimization. In this, uh, there are two primary verticals of work. One is the black box approach. For example, say you have evaluated five different configurations of hyperparameters. Um, for for sampling your sixth configuration, you look at the most promising area of the five configurations and you sample from the promising areas for your next evaluation. So essentially, you're trying to minimize the number of evaluations that you need to perform on the, on, on the machine learning models. The second vertical is wherein you're trying to expedite the whole evaluation process. For example, instead of evaluating the machine learning model for all of 100 epochs, you could evaluate uh, 10 different con configurations on, say, 10 epochs, and then go on minimizing the number of configurations while incre increasing the number of epochs per configuration. And I work at the intersection of both of these approaches where we are trying to augment uh, search algorithms with these different approximations of the machine learning model. Hi, everyone. It's Yasser. And today I'll be talking about the research arm of Warwick Data Science Society. Joined with me is Tom Palmer, a politics, philosophy and economics student who has written a post called The Trump Effect. Can data explain what we never saw coming? So Tom, could you give us a quick introduction to your project? Where did you get the idea and how did you first approach it? Well, um, US politics has always been a big research interest of mine. Did, did it at A-level as part of my politics A-level at school and, and university. It's been a major part of the politics component of my degree. So I was really interested in reviewing and researching the Trump 2016 election victory because I think it's changed the rules of politics almost in that his coalition, which his project has shown, is quite different the usual right-wing coalition. I think that replicates across the world. In the UK, Boris Johnson winning plate nor you know, northern working-class seats in 2019 echoes this so much, and I think the UK follows the US very closely. So it, it's, an, to me, a very important thing to research, and I was very grateful for the chance to do it at such a high level with Data Science Society. So the project, this is effectively trying to approach the question of how Trump won the US election while losing the popular vote, and the idea has been to show how he had a unique coalition which delivered him specific states which were so important because of the political makeup of the USA and getting these six states that were the difference between 2016 and 2012 gave him the election. So how did he do it? Well he won over specific people, in this case it was white, working class, less well educated and he lost voters, he lost well educated voters and the, um, particularly evangelicals but that didn't matter because these don't make up the important states for the purposes of this project. Okay, so how did Trump pull off an election victory despite his overall unpopularity? So you can approach this in two sectors, the political science and data science. And obviously I came to it from the political science angle. And instrumentally, the difference between 2012, where Obama beat Mitt Romney, and 2016, where Trump beat Clinton, was six states. Every other state voted the same way both in the two elections. And in 2016, five of these six states were in the same region, the Midwest. Um, in the UK, we can equate this to well, a northern industrial town, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. They were, they're called the Rust Belt. They were the, the old car industry of the US, uh, which is failing now. And Trump appealed particularly to these kinds of voters, and we showed this in this project. So I'm going to the data science side, Trump... Trump's unique coalition from the we made a regression sort of showing how Trump's um, Trump's vote share differs from 2012 
um, using P uh, PLS progression, uh, including all these variables such as education levels in a given county. And we found that education, uh, lower levels of education trumped well, high levels trumped badly. We've, um, evangelicals trumped surprisingly badly with, but there aren't many evangelicals in an urban state. There are lots of evangelicals in the Bible Belt, but Trump is going to win them anyway. Similarly, Clinton did really well in California, but California is already a very strong Democrat state. So the extra millions of votes she got doesn't change the election outcome. So that sort of, I think, shows how, despite being quite unpopular and losing the popular vote, it doesn't matter because in the US system, only close states matter. So California really doesn't matter. And people there are well-educated, brilliant universities, that part of the world, um, very diverse. And similarly, in Mississippi, Trump lost evangelicals doesn't matter because it's so Republican anyway. So even if Clinton overperforms slightly, it doesn't change the election. So I think that that's sort of how we're trying to show how Trump did it and made this model a predictive regression model to demonstrate how we can isolate these variables. How is Trump tackling the 2020 presidential election? And from your findings, do you think it's the right way to go? Well, how I think Trump should tackle the 2020 election is he needs to retain this coalition. And I think broadly he's doing that. He's not reaching out necessarily to evangelicals or, you know, educated voter populations because it would make no sense to because he's not going to win California or New York anyway. And he's going to win Mississippi anyway. So I think that's what he's doing. But 2020 is going to be so different anyway. So there's the mail-in ballots controversy where some states are going to count votes received after the election day because they might have been sent before the election day. And it this is a completely new dynamic now and that broadly is sort of what this project I think is circumstantially showing how the politics is changing. Divisions are less economic now, your wage and income is a pretty poor predictor I think on how you're going to vote and this project has tried to show how your education level or the industry you work in, if it's production or if it's people focused or um, you know, how you make your money, do you make things or do you sit at a computer, I think they're much stronger indicators now and that sort of shows our politics is changing and I, I wonder I wonder what's going to happen next really because I think the, as I said earlier the UK follows the US quite closely. So how did you find working with the Warwick Data Science Society research team and have you ever done anything like this before? Well no I haven't produced a bit of research to this level before and that's largely thanks to Data Science Society actually I approached Tim when I was researching a bit myself and well Tim was able to um, suggest new techniques. I didn't have a scooby about PLS regression before, but he thought that would eliminate the risk of collinearity between certain variables, which we might assume are related in parts of the US. And we want to separate that. We want, we don't want to know, you know, your income because it's correlated with race, perhaps, which it is in parts of the US. We want to separate race completely. And Data Science Society was able to do that very in a very sophisticated way. So I'm very thankful to Tim and Janique for their hard work and they were very communicative throughout the whole process and helped produce, I think, quite a strong piece of research. So Data Science Society get um, a very high regard for me in that sense. So do you have any advice for students who have a data science related project but may not have the skills to pursue it? I, I'd say if you have a domain and a question, that's probably sufficient to pursue a project because Data Science Society are always keen to expand into new areas. So if you do approach them with a, you know, saying I'm a particularly strong sociologist or I have a question about this particular research interest of mine, um, you might be able to get quite far with it, um, depend depending on how far you, you can get in the modelling. So you don't need to know a huge amount to get involved. And if you do want to know more, Data Science Society do offer classes for that kind of thing. 
So it's definitely worth getting involved with if you're remotely interested. Yeah, definitely. If you ever have a question or something that you really want to delve deeper in, definitely get in touch with our research team. And uh, just lastly, if you could go back to the first thought of this idea, would you change anything or approach it differently? Honestly, I'm, I'm not particularly sure I, I would. I, if, if anything, maybe I would have approached Data Science Society earlier, so I could have done more of this while I was um, at university. I'm now working in data analytics, and I think a large part of that is because of my engagement with the society, and that's really got me on a good track. And I'm hopefully going to be using data skills for the rest of my career because I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I would, I would say, actually, to anyone also that um, data skills are going to be a large part of the job industry when you go into it. So if you are pure career mercenary, is it worth getting into anyway? Because you might well need these skills in your career. Thanks for having this chat with me, Tom. It was great to hear about your piece of work. Cheers, Yasser. Good to be on. So how long do you think it will take auto machine learning to get to its uh, idealized or, or hyped form that it's currently receiving? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are its current limitations? Well, so let's let's look at what uh, what we could look at the future of AutoML or what the idealized form of machine of AutoML is. Um, so the intent of AutoML, as I said earlier, isn't to create a machine learning model from scratch. It's not to create a magic uh, algorithm that would work awesome in every scenario that would venture close to AGI, artificial general intelligence. And I don't think that's anywhere in the near time frame. So it's it's more about you know given given a baseline of model, how can we create the best version of the current model? How can we make small architectural changes or tune the hyperparameters or or learn from uh, similar models to create the best performing results? And this this is something that that's been rapidly that's rapidly being researched right now. Um, so large concern that looms is in terms of. Uh, the ethics and the explainability of machine learning models. Data scientists and engineers who don't fully understand the impact of their models right now are being able to deploy models in production, especially uh, the, the whole deployment process has become really fast given given the efficacy of AutoML. So, you know, while this helps you create models really fast, um, auditing and understanding the, the impact of your model still is largely a manual process. And I haven't seen any of the platforms address that yet. I have seen articles from, for example, h2o.ai to 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 have this in their future pipelines. Okay, that's uh, it's really interesting that the that while the engineers who work on it they know so much about it, mm-hmm. um, as soon as it's handed off to uh, other companies and 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 people to implement it, it's there's sort of a disconnect between how this is going to work and what's it going to do, right. and then the actual results that come out of it. Right, people. Again, it seems like people who don't fully understand what's going on mm-hmm. are, are making decisions using these models. Right. And I feel like that could, uh, you know, that, that could, could backfire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how do you think AutoML will change the work of a data scientist? I think AutoML takes away a lot of mundane iterative tasks that data scientists had to do. For example, choosing the best model to work with, tuning the hyperparameters, or ensembling a good architecture. So it's it's not about uh, so AutoML is not about replacing data scientists. It's just something that would make them more productive. Right. So things like interns who have to 
like constantly tweak parameters on models right. just to get the perfect model right you could just put it into a machine exactly you know say okay we want this model we want to like maximize this value right you know go right 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 exactly so and so auto ml yep. so auto ml models auto ml algorithms i would assume would be much more efficient than manual tuning in this process manual tuning of hyperparameters because you know you do have state-of-the-art search algorithms working and you you ha you do have uh, other intelligent techniques of multi fidelity in place to kind of uh, you know make this whole search process work really really fast right so automl is is even faster in a way than um, than regular machine learning but obviously the reason machine learning is used is to remove human discretion from situations where ai could make better decisions um this can however be also a criticism of ai as people feel more and more that the use of ai creates a lack of accountability uh, do you think that uh, automatic machine learning, despite being faster, is actually making this problem even worse and we're, we're making an even blacker box, so to say? Well, I agree that um, AI has kind of become a black box and that, uh, you know, we, we need to we need to inst instill some some sort of accountability, especially when it comes to critical applications like the self-driving vehicle. Um, so given that AutoML in general has really exp expedited the whole process of machine learning development process, there's been a lot of machine learning models into the productions now. And that also means that there are good product, good machine learning models that adds a lot of value to the society. Whereas there are also, you know, bad, bad models. For example, uh, in a, you know, there, there are models that discriminates, uh, dis discriminates disproportionately against a certain group of people. Uh, we, the, the way to tackle this is by instilling a fail-proofing safeguards into the system. In developing uh, machine learning models through AutoML, the priority needs to shift from simply optimizing for performance to also optimizing for explainability and interpretability of models. Uh, this could be instilled in three different ways. For example, um, getting more data samples to, to make sure that you avoid all sort of biases from the model or maybe adding more regularizers on the model with uh, with adversarial debiasing, or maybe even reweighting the prediction outputs so that uh, so that we we avoid biases on the from the machine learning model. So this is you know at the end of the day this is about making sure that the models are aren't biased inherently to certain groups of uh, certain target groups, for example. And then, well, I suppose the obvious question is, how can we make sure that these algorithms aren't actually biased? What techniques are there to show how uh, an auto ML model is actually making its decisions? Well, there are visualization approaches that would help uh, help you understand how an auto ML algorithm came to the decision of a certain architecture or a certain certain configuration for its hyperparameters. But more than the more than the journey of how the model came to be, it's more about how a model is taking decisions based on its features or uh, or based on the underlying data and this can be interpreted uh, based on say feature importance graphs like the partial dependence plots and looking at the underlying patterns in the data that can help us understand how the model itself is taking decisions based on the underlying data so just out of interest mm -hmm. um how uh, how much do you think about the the ethics of uh, machine learning do, do people ask you that often? Or oh, yes. Is it not really I've had a lot of discussions around this. Um, actually, the discussions weren't particularly from the tech community. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of uh, mm. a lot of research and coursework in design and strategy and all of those part. And uh, there was this girl, uh, Priyanka, whom I was talking to. 
and so she raised a lot of interesting questions from an outside perspective like we as machine learning and engineering researchers we don't really think about think so much about ethics we are just trying to optimize and get the best performance but mm. more it's more about it's it's a black box right machine learning at the end of the day it, you don't you don't really know what's going on inside so how do you how do you avoid extreme uh, situations and the the kind of questions that were being raised really interested me well thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come on our podcast and talk about machine learning and thank you to everyone listening for doing so Next time, I'll be talking to Dr. Jonathan Cave, a former economist at the Bank of England and the US Federal Trade Commission, a senior researcher at the RAND Corporation, and now, since 1994, a senior fellow in the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick. From Dr. Cave's work as part of the Turing Institute's Data Ethics and Advisory Committee, we'll talk about how algorithms are being used to make important decisions and the implications this can have on people's lives and the law. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.